Hello and welcome to season four of the Treasures from Malta podcast, a podcast series produced by Fondazione Patrimonio Malti. I am Francesca Balzan, an artist and art historian who goes back a long way with Patrimonio. In this podcast, I meet even more of Malta's living treasures. I meet artists, collectors and historians with some Malta connection and we have conversations about their life in art. My guest today is elegance personified. Her petit frame belies the incredibly powerful singing voice that has made her a household name. Her musical repertoire is vast and she's equally comfortable singing Baroque opera as she is with 20th century compositions. She has worked alongside such greats as Placido Domingo and Joseph Calea and sung to much acclaim in the US and across the major capitals of Europe. She's consistently lauded in reviews, and while her musical prowess is at its peak, she's also engaged in various projects focusing particularly on musical education, setting up and directing choirs both for professional performances and for community engagement purposes. She sees power in music and song, not just to uplift and delight audiences, but also to heal and enhance the performer's life. Gillian Zambit, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Francesca. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Gillian, was there a point in your childhood when you knew that your voice could be your art and your profession? Well, I I think from an, the earliest stage as I can remember, I've always loved music. And obviously, when you're young, you don't have a concept of a profession or doing something for a living. But my sister used to play the piano. And I always remember sitting on my mother's lap watching my sister play the piano and just thinking, I, I want to do that as well. And that that's how it started. And it all, um, I started playing the piano when I was five years old. Um, and as I started growing older and understanding what, you know, music was and possibility of a career, that's all I ever wanted. So the, it was actually piano that started off my musical life, not singing. And my intention was to study here until I got my diploma. And then I intended to um, get accepted <laughs> in an academy in London. <laughs> I really wanted to go to the Royal College, um, which is placed exactly in front of the Royal Albert Hall. And my dream was I'd go to the Royal College, I'd graduate, and then I'd cross the road to the Royal Albert Hall. And there I'd make my debut playing Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto Number no. 1. That was it in my mind. <laughs> Very clear, very clear in what you wanted to do. <laughs> very clear. Um, and then when I was about 12 or 13, my mum was English and she um, she used to sing in the choir at St. Patrick's because that's where we used to go um, on Sundays. And, you know, I'd always go with her. So I used to join in and just sing along with them. And the choir master there, Alfred Camilleri, he um, he said, you know, you've got a very sweet voice. Why don't you go for singing lessons? You know, you do piano as well. It would be nice to go to singing as well. And I thought, okay, that would fit in well with my plan because at the Royal College, I knew that you needed a second instrument. So singing would be my second instrument. So that was <laughs> <laughs> that was the plan. Um, and I was 13. I started lessons with Antoinette Mijani at the time. Um, and very slowly, even without me realising the my singing, my voice took over from the piano and mm -hmm. it was really, I felt that I could express myself much better. I was much freer to express myself with my voice as opposed to the piano. With the piano, I was always 
more concerned with the technique side of things. So, um, but when I sang, I just felt, you know, obviously working on technique as well, but it was easier, much easier to express. So the instruments switched basically. So it was always music, but there was just an instrument swap halfway, well, not even halfway through, which is pretty much (laughs) early on. What happened after that, after Antoinette Medjani? So I studied with Antoinette for a number of years, and then I um, studied with Paul Asha. They were both very supportive, Paul especially. He was, you know, he said, you know, you need to go abroad. You should uh, stand here abroad. And he had to prepare me for an audition with Carlo Bergonzi in Parma, in Italy. And um, age 20, I left Malta and I uh, moved to Italy. And um, we were based just outside Parma in a very small village called Busseto. And Carlo Bergonzi was one of the greats, I mean, all-time greats. Really a living legend meeting him, a meeting um, such a fantastic tenor who was, you know, renowned for his interpretation of Verdi. And he based his, um, his academy in Busseto, which was a tiny, tiny village. No, n- no distractions, no cinema, no bars, no nothing. It was like a little piazza, a little road where there was a man who sold cheese and another man who sold ham, and then a coffee <laughs> shop on the corner where all the old men of the village would meet, and that was it. But he based it there. He was a huge disciplinarian. He was very much of the mind that you are here to study singing and you're not here to do anything else. You're not here to enjoy yourself. You're not here to go out and party. You're just here to study. And he based himself in Busseto because he, and that was Verdi country, basically. Verdi was born just outside Busseto, lived in Busseto a long time. So it was um, just an excuse, really, just to keep us away from the bright lights. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then I spent four years with him, and it was a wonderful four years, not only from a technique point of view, but he really prepared me for life in the real world. He, um, he was very, very tough. Um, and I was very grateful when I left him that he was very tough. At the time, I wasn't because you're young, so you do want to have the element of you know, enjoying yourself as well. But he was so strict. Um and and it really served me well because it made me very tough. He could actually, you know, if if he found out that you had gone out one weekend, mm-hmm. you know, he would leave us the weekend and come back on Monday morning. We'd sneak out, we'd find someone to take us to the neighboring town just to go for a <laughs> dance or a drink, you know, something very <laughs> innocent, very normal. But if he found out, then you were, I mean, not in trouble, but he would humiliate you at your next lesson like I said it really served well because you know critics critics you know they can say what they like you know you, mm-hmm. you, you know you, when you're prepared from such a young age to to face that kind of harshness um mm-hmm. you know then then you really you're you're set up for this profession because it's very tough it's it's a disappointing profession at times it's got its great highs but then obviously when it's got its lows it's really low mm-hmm. um so so it was quite a a learning curve and then after Bergonzi I moved to Victoria de Los Angeles mm-hmm. who was again another legend of her time and um with her I worked more on song rather than opera mm-hmm. and um she really opened my my mind and she made me realize that even that was where my musical um tastes lie really I love mm. opera I do opera I sing opera you know but it's not what I 
love to do. I love chamber music. I love song recital. Um, and she really brought that out in me and um, mm-hmm. she was a wonderful teacher. So, and then after I um, stopped um, having lessons with her and then kind of you start your career and you have to. During these years when you were training, you were sort of cut off in a way, as you explain, although you were subject to all this discipline and you were prepared extensively. Were you also performing limitedly, perhaps as a student? Very limitedly, because um, there were different times and even locally, like when I tried to come back to Malta, there were very limited things happening in those in those days. I mean, when I was starting off you know 15 16 you were lucky if you sang once a year i mean it was like mm-hmm. very few things we, we forget and this generation as well has no idea of what it was like in mm-hmm. those days in mm-hmm. the 90s and, you know 2000s early 2000s there was nothing happening very little mm-hmm. there was maybe an mci concert which was organized once a month the few odd little concerts here and there but there was nothing of the scale mm-hmm. that we have today so we didn't get a lot of performing practice. And even um, studying abroad in Italy, it was very difficult because if there was an opportunity, then nine times out of 10, it went to an Italian because mm. um, the Italians are very, they're very good like that because they look after their own first. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they, they give the opportunity to the local talent rather than the, the foreign who might be studying there. Um, so no, in that period, I wouldn't say I had a lot of, performing experience at what stage did you feel that you had arrived I mean was there a particular performance where you thought I've made it you know I'm I'm finally a fully fledged performer I've arrived I can't say that I ever thought that I've made it there have been performances where I've really felt satisfied either because I would have sung something that would have been, um, you know, a dream to have sung for such a long time. Mm-hmm. And that performance would have gone as you wished that that performance would, mm-hmm. you know, turn out because it's something, a piece of music that means so much to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think it's evolving, constantly evolving. And because as well, the voice, everybody's voice constantly evolves and matures the things I couldn't sing certain things when I was 18 that I can sing now. Mm-hmm. And then in 10 years time, I may be able to sing different rep again, because your voice is constantly changing and maturing and darkening. And you know, so it's a constant evolvement. That's why I can't ever say I've made it because it's just constantly mm-hmm. changing and progressing. I think. Julian, what do you mean by your voice darkening? When I was younger, I was a light coloratura soprano. As you get older, the voice, even without any form of training, just just changes. Mm-hmm. It, it does become, I, I call it vocal middle age spread. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, the the colour does change. So people who, again, might not have heard me for a long time, today will say, oh, wow, your voice is, is different. It's much darker. It's richer. It, it just does change. It's nature. And then, of course, when you train your voice and you you have a set technique and then you can adapt your the way you sing to the voice that you have at that time. In fact, recently I, I recorded um, Gauletana in Gozo are doing some uh, online operatic scenes. We did them first during COVID last year and yes, this year they're doing them again. And I sang um, the aria from Pagliacci, which 10 years ago you told me I'd sing Pagliacci. I was, would be like, no forget it because I didn't have the weight of sound to be able to sing that piece also with the weight of the orchestra 
you know, these are all things you have to think about. But I can sing it now, so it's it's nice that mm-hmm. you then there's always something new to learn. So absolutely, it's exciting in that sense. And um, do you feel that your style is evolving as well? Is there? Can you speak about a style? Yes, I mean, I I think my style has always been more about the music and the text as opposed to showing off of my voice. Mm-hmm. So this was something as well that I really learned from uh, Victoria de Los Angeles because she was wonderful in that respect. The text was the not more important than the music, but they went hand in hand. And especially mm-hmm. with the kind of pieces that I like to sing, the song recitals, Schubert, Schumann, Strauss, um, the text um, the text is fantastic poems written by poets of the day. So you don't only have a beautiful piece of music, but you've got a beautiful poem to pay respect to as well. Mm-hmm. And these pieces were written so well that the poetry and the music just combine mm-hmm. so beautifully. It's it's you can't say the music is more important than the text or vice versa mm-hmm. because they are a duo. Um, so I've always really felt it's super important to really understand the language and the lyrics that you're singing and it's not just having a general idea okay this this phrase means i love you mm-hmm. <laughs> basic this phrase is talking about different colors and different shades and different and how can you express that and how can you give the right color to your voice if you don't know what every single word means so that is maybe what my style is about in fact, your repertoire is really vast. It takes you from the Baroque to the 20th century. So that cuts across many centuries. Um, is it necessary for you to understand the age uh, that the music and lyrics were created in? And by that, I mean kind of the context. And in a way, you've touched upon the emotional aspect of the context. And you want to understand deeper. And you want to understand if it's poetry, you have to understand where it's coming from. And if so... What sort of research do, do you do in preparation for a role that sort of is set in a particular century and with a particular style? I would say um, it's, I mean, it's hugely important and it's, you you have to know what was happening in that period and why that composer was influenced to write mm-hmm. in that way and by whom he was influenced. It might have been musicians of the day, it might have been the poets of the day, the artists of the day. Mm-hmm. What was happening in the world at that time? Was there a war in that area? What was that? It's it's it all comes together. There is a reason why Shostakovich's symphonies sound as they do because it mm-hmm. reflects what was he went through in his life, and why does Debussy sound the way he does? Because he was he was part of the impressionist circle with the mm-hmm. painters and the poets of that period. So that is why. That, that style and the way you sing has to reflect the style of the period. That's why it's so important that, you know, it's, it, again, it's something that I really stress to young singers coming up. It's not only about your voice. Your voice is the starting point. Mm-hmm. Yes, you have to have a good voice to be able to sing, but that is just where you set off from. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a musical understanding, a strong musical understanding, and if you don't have a, an understanding about the, the circumstances in which the pieces that you were um, singing were composed in, mm-hmm. then yes, you can sing, but mm-hmm. you're going to give a very superficial interpretation yeah. and a very superficial performance of 
the music that you're meant to be trying to not only pay respect to, but give your audience that emotion. So mm-hmm. if you don't understand it, then there's no way you're going to expect your audience to understand it. Absolutely. Uh, music to my ears, excuse the pun, but um, as, as historians in any, um, in any discipline, really, it's always so important to look at the context because it gives you such a greater understanding of how a piece of art was created, be it music, be it the visual arts. So um, it's wonderful to hear that even from your end of things, you're looking at even perhaps the visual arts, the political situation at the time, the economic situation, what health scares were on at the time. I mean, we've seen in our day how health scares can really impact our life, and we'll talk about it later. Do you actually look at the visual arts? Is there any crossover for you? Yes, I'm, and um, I'll come back to Victoria de Los Angeles because she was such a wonderful person she I remember I think it was my second lesson with her and I was kind of still on my really best behavior you know just <laughs> starting off with somebody especially someone so great I just wanted to make such a good impression with her and I think it was the second lesson we were working on a, a Schubert song and she stopped me and she said do you go to art galleries and like in that moment I was like oh, what's the right answer I do go but is she going to say and I had just come out of lessons with Bergonzi who for Bergonzi it was just singing and no, nothing else. So I was thinking, okay, she's going to. If I say yes, is she going to say, well, you should be focusing just on your singing because you're not good enough? And all this kind of thing. <laughs> so I, I, that moment, I just said, let me be honest, and I said, yes, I do go to art galleries. You know, when I can, when I have the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she said, well, the next time you go, she said, just go and find. Um, she said, either go and find either um, Monet or Manet. She said. And just go and stand in front of the painting. She said, and go as close as possible. And she said, and have a look just at a leaf. She said, and have a look and see how many different shades of green went into that one leaf. Go and have a look at the pond and see how many shades of blue went in to create that pond. She said, and then take a step back and look at the bigger picture. She said, so with your voice, she said, every note you sing has to have a different shade. Then those, all those different shades put together create the emotion and the feeling and the color that you're portraying to your audience. And that just stuck with me for, forever. Fantastic. <laughs> a, a few minutes into this recording, you already were mentioning things like color and the darkening of the voice. You mentioned paintings, you mentioned artists. So already it's very clear to me that somehow you're visualizing your music as well. Conversely, I've come to music in a way through through painting. I'm a visual person myself, so I go to museums. They are my bread and butter practically. That's my research. And recently I've started to listen to music rather than read captions at museums. I listen to the music of the time. I just stream it as I'm walking along the halls of a museum. And it's changed the way I look at paintings. So, you know, the crossover is so enriching. But looking at a different art, looking at sort of a performing art, yeah, I just wanted to ask you as well that um, critics have not only lauded your voice and your versatility, but they've also mentioned things like your diction, memory, and your acting skills. For example, I'll quote Albert Storace in the Times of Malta. He says this about you. He says, she's amazingly versatile, technically and musically up to scratch, and is mnemonically impressive. 
with a wide exploitation of vocal range. And then Cecilia Schwerep in the Sunday Times of Malta. Her coloratura is crystal clear and is matched by perfect diction in whatever language she may be singing in. Now, is acting part of your training? It is. It is. And um, it's a very important part because, again, gone are the days when you can just stand on stage and deliver an aria, just standing face on to the audience and just, you know, expect it to work. Today, the audience expects to go to an opera and, and, and have it be believable. And opera is that. Mm -hmm. Opera is such a multi, you know, it's not just about the music. It's a visual. It's the stage. It's the setting. It's the 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 lighting. It's got so much, you know, it's it's a total totally, work of art. <laughs> total work of art, exactly. And today you do have to be believable as an actress. If you're singing Traviata, people want to believe that you're dying of consumption. You know, if it's it's it has to be believable and I think it it really is a good thing because it's helping especially the younger I think there's more of a an element of um acting in the younger generation of singers coming up because mm -hmm. in colleges and academies today it's a huge part of their training in my day I did have some acting lessons but they weren't as important in those days as they should have been um mm -hmm. I've been very fortunate when I've been in operas to work with very good directors who have, you know, really helped you bring out the skills that you have. And again, if you are fully immersed into your character and you are looking at it from the point of view of the character and the text, then the acting kind of comes not on its own, but it's, 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 if you're just looking at it, right, okay, now I just need to cross the stage and here I have to do something with my arms because it's uncomfortable. And, just, you know, it just obviously doesn't work. But that mm -hmm. means that you're not immersed in the character because if you are thinking about the character and what she is really feeling at that point, then it comes naturally. It's like mm -hmm. we are natural. And that, that's what I feel it should be. It should look natural mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you are feeling it to such an extent that you would naturally make a gesture or move in a certain way mm -hmm. because it's part and parcel of what you are expressing. Is there a voice from the present or even the past that has been a great inspiration to you? Absolutely, Maria Callas. And <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, it sounds like a cliche, because, but it, it really is because she was such, such a singing actress. She mm -hmm. was the first in her time. I mean, and we're talking about here, yeah, 50s, 60s, which... It wasn't the case. Again, I mean, you would generally find singers quite wooden at the time, you know, it wasn't mm. really the thing to do. But because she was so dedicated to making sure that every every phrase, every word had meaning and had life, you, you listen to her recordings and it's just, she sings from deep somewhere so deep inside and she just brings out the colors and the emotions and there's a recording of her singing I think in, in the 1960s in um, Covent Garden and she was doing Tosca with uh, Tito Gobbi as Scarpia again another fantastic um, acting singer and they were directed by Zeffirelli and Zeffirelli had she wasn't in retirement, but she had kind of taken a little step back. This was the time she was with Anasis, so 
sort of mm-hmm. career had taken a little bit of a back um, step. And he kind of persuaded her to come to Covent Garden and sing this Tosca. And if you look it up on YouTube, just type in Tosca, Act 2, Maria Callas, Covent Garden. She sings Bissidarte. And mm-hmm. I swear, I've heard it so many times. Every time I just sit there and I cry. It's just like... <laughs> but she sings it because you can see she's this woman at that time of her life as well. And she's saying, I gave everything for art. Yes, you do this to me. And it's obvious she's singing about her own life story. Mm-hmm. But because mm-hmm. it is so real to her, then it is so real to you. Utterly convincing. Wonderful. Let's take a break now and let's listen to you. Sure. This is, I think, one of my favorite songs. It's by a composer called um, Paolo Tosti. And uh, Tosti wrote so many beautiful songs. Um, And this is my absolute favorite called The Deale. And this is myself and Lucia Micale from Piano. And we recorded the CD of Tosti songs quite a few years ago now. And I've always thought Tosti was not an not admired as much as he should be, but I think he's, you know, he he wrote such little jewels of perfect, perfect songs, and Ideal is one of them. And we're back. Don't forget to go to our podcast page on www.patrimonio.org to see pictures and links to what we've discussed in each podcast episode. Now, Gillian, which is your favourite opera? And I mean, even just to enjoy it as an audience member. And secondly, which is your favourite role to perform in an opera? Favourite opera to watch? Uh, Probably Rigoletto. I always... Love that. I mean, it's one of those operas from beginning to end. There's just no no moment where you say this music isn't beautiful. The storyline obviously is very dramatic, but it's a fantastic opera. So I probably Rigoletto to watch. And my favorite role, maybe more than a role, um, simply because I do love song more than I love opera, mm-hmm. um, would be the four last songs um by Richard Strauss. Um, they are a fantastic um, group of songs. It's a song cycle um, written in 1940s, 1948, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it was it's a piece I've had the fortune, the good fortune to be able to perform. And it is just such a wonderful piece of music. It's it's my, you know, if I could only ever sing another piece ever again, it would be that one. <laughs> <laughs> are they particularly challenging from the point of view of a recital singer? Yes, they are very technically demanding. Um, Strauss wrote very high tessatura, so he wrote for very high voice. Um, these are particularly um, high. And they're also, um, the phrases are extremely long, so there's a lot of um, you know, 
breath control required. And also the orchestra is uh, of quite a substantial size. So, you know, you have that weight of sound as well to deal with. So it's not only the agility, height of piece, but also it needs quite a, a broad sound. So there's a lot of technical demand there. And then even, uh, not even, but especially emotionally, they are four songs that um, they deal with death. The first one is called Spring. Um, doesn't actually deal with death, but that is the introduction to um, the next piece, which is called September. And it's um, then it moves. It's a slow progression. The last piece is called At Sunset. And it's such a beautiful, and it's not morbid in any way. It's just a very calm acceptance of mm. that, which is going to come to everybody. Mm-hmm. And Strauss wrote it at the end of his life. And it was obviously, he felt that, you know, he had done everything and he had, he was content with what he had done and it, total acceptance of what the next step was. And there's such beautiful beasts, really. We've spoken a lot about emotion. Let's talk about excitement now. I mean, the excitement of performing. Which bit do you find most exciting? The moment before the curtains open, the applause at the end where you know you've done well, or even the most challenging passages that you know you've managed to ace? It's probably a combination of all those things. (laughs) Um, If it's an opera or something that you're performing with orchestra, I love the moment before you go on stage when the orchestra is warming up. So the <laughs> one instrument will give that one note and then all the instruments come in and it's organized chaos because everyone's mm-hmm. doing their own thing, their own warm up. But it's such a fantastic sound. I love that mm-hmm. sound. Even when I'm mm-hmm. in the audience watching a concert, mm-hmm. I just love that moment. Same here. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, the bit before is always the worst. Once you're on stage, then obviously your nerves you know, mm. once you step on stage and you're fine, it's the build-up mm-hmm. to that. In fact, I, I often wish when I wake up in the morning, oh, I just wish I could go and do it now rather than have to wait the whole day and, you know, your nerves up. And... So you still um, get nervous, Gillian? You still get nervous yes, before performance? Yes, I I'm definitely. And again, I, I think it's, it's there are good days and days where you walk out and go out on stage and you know maybe you're not feeling a hundred percent but you still have Mm -hmm. to go out on stage and do it so again the nerves and the anticipation is always different because if you're feeling good and you know you're super prepared and everything then it's it's nerves but it's an excitement as well wanting Mm -hmm. to go out there and share what you've prepared um so in that case you know you you walk on stage and then you're really in control of what you're doing and everything's working. So you start enjoying the performance mm-hmm. and then you can, you know, see, feel the audience on your side. So yes, then obviously if you have to do the same thing and you're not feeling hundred percent, then it's always harder. There's, mm-hmm. you know, you have to pace yourself and the whole evening will just be a little bit more tense for you because, you know, either you've been sick or, you know, you're feeling a little hoarse or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and you can't show the audience. The audience isn't there to feel sorry for you. The audience yeah. is still there to enjoy themselves and expect something. So, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are different levels of excitement. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about your voice as an instrument. How do you protect your voice? Because it is the one instrument that cannot be replaced. I mean, if something goes wrong with another instrument presumably you can replace at last moment but in your case there's just nothing you can do about it um so how do you go about protecting it do you limit the hours of practice do you prepare before and ensure that you're you, know, you don't use it for a few hours before what, what what is the sort of um regime 
the, the regime, I think more than, I mean, practice, of course, you have to, every voice is different. We're all different. Like I'm very fortunate. I can pretty much go out and sing without having to warm up my voice too much. There are other voices that need a lot of warmth before they go out mm. on stage. But um, practice, again, you have to be careful that you do enough, but not too much to tire yourself out, especially obviously leading up to a performance. But I think more than that, it's um, looking after, making sure that you're always singing the repertoire that suits you. Mm-hmm. And that is mm-hmm. something that is very hard to um, for younger singers to understand mm-hmm. as well. So that is yeah. a very big part of training to understand that, Yes, you might love to sing Traviata, but not mm-hmm. yet. You sing Traviata mm-hmm. in 10 years' time. If you try to sing Traviata before then, you're going to damage your voice. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and then what? In 10 years' time, you won't have anything left. And it's very hard, especially today, because you find agents and managers who not always necessarily have your best interest. They might, you know, have a house calling them and say, well, I need a tenor for this send someone and they send the tenant that's available, notwithstanding the fact that it might not be the right time. And mm-hmm. something I would remember Paul Asha was very, you know, fantastic with this, is insistent on sing what you know is right. And your voice will tell you, if you sing something and you know you're struggling, don't try to insist on it. It's mm-hmm. obviously there are things that need work. So it doesn't mean that you first think something and straight away it fits, but mm-hmm. you know that with a bit of work, you'll manage it. There are those pieces you know that just don't fit your voice. So mm-hmm. don't try them. Later, and like I, like I said, the voice changes. So later on, you will do things that you couldn't do before. And there's mm-hmm. plenty of time. We're lucky that our career can last a long time if you look after the voice. You know, I mean, there are singers singing in their 70s because they look yeah. after their voice. Ber- Bergonzi was one of them. He, he was, when I trained with him, he was already in his late 70s. Mm-hmm. And I remember one day he was so excited. He said, oh, I can't, I have to go to fly to New York tomorrow. And we were like, oh my God, why? And um, he said, because there's, there's this big gala at the Met and um, Pavarotti's sick. And they've called me instead. And Pavarotti oh. was like 20 years younger than him. <laughs> and we were, we were all like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, you know, mm-hmm. you're like 78. And he went, and the, the newspapers the next day were just like, Bergonzi shows them how to do it. And he came back, and he was so, I can imagine. Was, but because Incredible. his voice, his technique was secure, and he always sang what suited. Mm-hmm. And so this is such an important thing for young singers to, you know, understand and keep in the back of their mind. There's plenty of time to do the big things. Mm-hmm. We'd all love to sing. You have to accept sometimes there are things that you just will never be able to sing, and that's fine. You know, yeah. so that's a big important part of looking after the voice. Also, being careful what you eat, what you drink, alcohol. So if you know you've got a performance coming up, you know you can't go out and have a few drinks. And you know certain mm-hmm. foods, everybody's different as well. What foods react to your body and what your body doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, tolerate. Have you had to cancel performances um, on occasion? I mean, when your voice, when there was something wrong with your voice at the last minute, perhaps flu or something like that. And have you had to stand in for others cancelling? Yes, I've had to stand in. So, you know, same thing. Someone might be sick and can't can't perform that night. I think I've only cancelled twice, maybe, or three times. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, it would just literally be 
once I, once I had chicken pox, so absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's a complete no-no. We don't want you on stage. <laughs> um, you know, if you're very hoarse, I mean, there's nothing that you can do. You know, sometimes if you have a cold, you do have to go on stage, just mm-hmm. normal cold, and, and you can sing to a certain extent. You just, you know, have to be careful and mark it down as not being a great night for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But let's speak about that horrible two years we've just been through. How did you weather the COVID storm? I mean, apart from obviously everything got cancelled for you, all your concerts, I would imagine that you were particularly concerned about how something which is really a highly contagious respiratory disease could affect your voice. I mean, we just didn't know what the long-term effects of COVID were going to be. That's it. And um, I am as well. I'm asthmatic. I have been since I was five years old. So oh, no. <laughs> um, and I did catch COVID. Actually, I put it this year in June. Um, it didn't affect my voice as such. It did affect my breathing for quite a while. So COVID was very difficult for performers everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, just the, the cancellation of performances and I, I feel, I mean, I don't know if it's my impression only, but it really did feel like we weren't an important part of life for other people because it was such an easy thing for people not to go to. I, I don't know how to describe it. Mm, it was dispensable. It was it dispensable. Was On yes. the other hand, especially in the first stages of COVID when we were so scared of it and we, obviously the vaccine wasn't out yet and all that, we turned increasingly to entertainers, to people, to performers. We were looking at music. People were performing out on their balconies. So the value of the arts came to the fore, but particularly the performing arts, don't you think? I I do think to a certain extent, yes, we and I did like everybody else, other performers did lots of things online and posted mm-hmm. things for people to see. It was a way for you as well as a performer to actually just be at home doing something. And again, sharing it with people that you knew did like, you know, the arts. However, it was then something that um I had a discussion with a lot of my friends and peers, not just in Malta, but um, in the UK and everywhere else, that that was all done for free, which was great mm-hmm. and absolutely as it should have been at that time. But when we then moved into the second year mm-hmm. and there was, you know, sort of talk and some people actually did some performances online and asked for payment mm-hmm. because it is, at the end of the day, our profession like everybody else's. Then you started mm-hmm. seeing less interest in mm-hmm. wanting, people wanting to actually pay to see things online. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a lot of talk as we well at the time, you know, you know, well, well, why don't you, maybe it's time that you go and get a proper job. Oh, <laughs> you know? dreadful. What a, what lack yes, of understanding of the arts. Yes. But I wanted to move on to something else. You, Jillian, you've recorded a number of CDs. Tell me about how significant this can be in a performer's career. I think CDs, um, I think it's difficult. Again, today, I don't know, people as, as in a physical CD, I don't think people are interested anymore because now it's all about downloading, everything is being online and whatever. Um, I think recording is important. I, I look at recording, the things I've recorded and the things that I'm hoping to record um, in the future are 
pieces is are works that I really love. So it's not mm-hmm. a question of recording a CD just to have recorded a CD. It's really for posterity, for myself to have worked on these pieces and to just leave these pieces there, mm-hmm. you know, for the audience to have a greater awareness of these beautiful pieces. And again, I tend to record things that maybe haven't been recorded that often mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. you know, again, I, I don't see the need for me to record things that have been recorded a hundred times. I would mm-hmm. rather focus on maybe niche um, composers. Again, like the Tosti CD is mm-hmm. not a huge following, but they are so beautiful and so deserving of an audience that it, it's it kind of more of a labour of love for me, a recording of a CD rather than anything else. And that was signed up by UK record label Claudio Records. That's right. Gillian, let's listen to you and another piece of music. Can you tell me about it? Um, so this is a piece that I recorded um, under the auspices of the MPO with Britt Arendt, who's the MPO principal harpist, and Frank Camilleri, who plays the cello section of the MPO. And um, it's a CD we recorded a couple of years ago called Cantilena. And it's a, it's a selection of, I think, our favourite songs. We, we just sat down and we just brainstormed and we all came up with our favourite pieces. And one of them was this, which is called the Bacchianas Brasileiras Number no. 5 um, by Villa Lobos. Talking about more niche projects, you're involved in the Monteverdi project and you've got a very essential role in it. Can you talk us through that? Sure. So the Monteverdi project was started five years ago. Um, it was the idea of Kenneth Samitabona. Um, and it is a it's a consort of singers who we brought together because there was such a lack of singers here locally who knew how to or specialize in baroque singing which is a very specialist kind of style and um i had done a lot of baroque music i do a lot of baroque music i always have from the age of 13 i um, i first started singing many years ago at that age i think 15 was the first concert i gave with maestro joe velangozo and um, Maria Frendo and um, Joe was the first person to really bring music out of the archives in Emdina and bring it back to life. Mm-hmm. So this music mm-hmm. and focusing mostly on Maltese Baroque composers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been singing Baroque music basically since the beginning of my career. Um, and whenever we needed other singers, we'd always have to kind of import them, like right? Italian singers or English singers. And we c- came up with this idea um, of forming a consort made up of local singers and foreign singers who live uh, in Malta and um, we Kenneth um, engaged the services of Marco Mencoboni who is uh, 
well specialist on Monteverdi and the composers of that period. He's a harpsichord player. Um, and he comes to Malta basically once a month and gives three days of masterclasses in style of the period, and talking to the singers about the style and how to use their voices in that style. And I, in between, prepare them for his visits. And I prepare them okay. for concerts and going through repertoire. And I have sessions with them as well, talking about style, etc. So this is what the Monteverdi project is. And it's really, um, it's really come on in leaps and bounds. We now have around 22 singers. Mm-hmm. Um, and last year, we actually managed to produce Daido and Aeneas. And all mm-hmm. the singers were from the consort. So we I didn't see. have to bring any outside singers mm-hmm. in. Um, and it's and it's really going from strength to strength. Part of the project as well, part of the work that I do with Marco, is going into the archives at Mdina mm-hmm. and again um, transcribing and finding music that's never been performed before. And we've done quite a few modern day first performances, which is really nice. And now this is interesting. So although it's named after Claudio Monteverdi, was an Italian composer of the 16th, um, bridging into the 17th century. It's not just Monteverdi, Monteverdi's music that you're playing. You're researching music, discovering music in the cathedral archives. Now, you're actually adapting the music as well. Once you discover it, you have to adapt it for the, for the performers. Do you have a hand in doing that? No, that uh, Marco will um, find, find the scores, and he's found scores as well, not just in the Indian archives, in archives around the world particularly of um, Girolamo Arbos. In fact, we have a a concurrent project called the Arbos Project, Mm -hmm. um, which is discovering music by Girolamo Arbos. And again, we've recorded a CD in Italy last year, which will be out soon. And again, it's just, it's it's amazing. You you find this fantastic music that hasn't been performed since those, those times. And you're the first person to, you know, bring this music back to life. So it is really exciting. But Gillian, talking about training um, other singers and everything, you've really been deeply involved in musical education. In fact, you've trained children's choirs as well, as well as adult choirs, both on a community level, but also for operatic productions. Now, I was particularly struck by your involvement with the Teatro Salesian's Adult Community Choir. And this was set up in the middle of COVID chaos in spring 2021. Now, I, I read an interview with you, and you said specifically about its role. It is aimed at the community rather than looking to be an amateur or professional choir. It is there primarily to offer members of the community an opportunity to make music, but also to socialize. You also talk about the beneficial effects of singing, especially for older people. And you say this you say music brings people together, and singing in particular helps unlock emotions and can help reduce stress levels. Singing can also improve mental alertness, concentration, and also memory in older adults. Now, Gillian, tell me more about the power of singing. Singing is, I really, it's it's a release as well of emotion. It's, it's, mm. it's, and I think it's all instruments, of course, are, important and you know have their own special traits but I, I think the voice just because it's you it is mm-hmm. you are your instrument it is your body it is you making that sound 
it's I think it's just a very special special way of expressing and the Silesian choir which you mentioned it's it really was a fantastic idea by the Silesians by Rosetta de Battista who um, runs the, the um, Teatro Salesiani and she approached me and she said you know what do you think of this idea and I said it sounds great it's something I've always wanted to do because I've always been um, working with professionals or you know young singers who want to be professional and I had always wanted to do something for a group of people who might never had had the opportunity to do that before. And in fact, um, during the audition process, which is a very relaxed, I mean, I call it audition process, because it's just a fair <laughs> thing to meet, you know, everybody. Um, everybody would, almost everybody said to me, you know, I, I'm really shy to sing in front of you. I've never been in front of anyone before. And when I was younger, my eldest member is 82. Mm. Um, and she, she was like, you know, when I was young, it was really frowned upon that you just didn't do this kind of thing. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everybody came into this with a real, with trepidation as well, because they didn't know mm -hmm. what to expect. Um, and like you said, it was during COVID. So sometimes you could meet, sometimes you couldn't. And when we met, it, it gave me as the professional, and obviously I do this as a job and it's my daily job. Um, you forget sometimes kind of maybe why you do it or the excitement mm. just purely making music for the sake of making music. And mm. this is really what this group gave me because they they would leave the sessions with such a buzz and I'd go home mm -hmm. and be really buzzing. And it was during COVID, so I had no mm -hmm. other work. But it was really, <laughs> you know, the excitement and the, the real passion that they had for what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And it was really teaching them everything from scratch because, like I said, they had no previous experience in being on stage or being in a group or doing certain singing techniques, you know. And when we, we managed to give a concert at the end, and honestly, the members of the audience, which were all their friends, so we did it at the church, by that time the church was packed with friends and family, <laughs> and they were just beaming all the way through the concert. And we went off stage and we did came back on and we did our encore. And then we went off and that was it. And, you know, it was really great. I'll, you know, see you next year. And they were like, we want to go out and do another one. And I was like, no, but the, the audience is leaving. Like, that's the concert over. And they're like, no, 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 I want to go. We want to go back. And they went out again and sang another piece just for the joy of singing. Really. Oh, lovely. wonderful. Really so th there are really beneficial effects. I mean, this is not why we do our art, but it's so wonderful that sort of as an aside, it is so uplifting. And really, the arts are incredibly uplifting in everyone's life. They are for everyone. And this is something that we really need to keep repeating, but it's not just for a select audience. Gillian, in 2020, the St. John's Co-Cathedral Foundation set up a children's choir to be trained by you. Can you tell me how that's going? That's going really well. We have our... Um, First, I would say really major concert and major collaboration coming up on, in December. Uh, on the 20th of December, we'll have our Christmas concert with the MPO and the MYO, um, conducted by Philip Walsh. And um, as you said, this again started during COVID. <laughs> Not the best time to start a children's <laughs> choir or any <laughs> choir of that sort. Um, but um, I started off with 20 children and um, auditioned them all. And the, the aim of this choir is to not only to, you know, teach children repertoire, 
but I also give them a more holistic musical outlook. So we give them theory sessions, do sight reading, um, talk about the music and the style of that period so they know and start understanding. Um, and the aim of this is to really create a children's choir. It's first of all to represent um, St. John's Co Cathedral Foundation both locally and abroad. So my idea oh. is it's time to start taking them abroad to festivals and competitions and really creating, you know, a, a professional children's choir. Yeah. Um, can you spot the stars of tomorrow amongst the children you're training? <laughs> you can see those who will have the voice and the musicality and the ability to um, to to try and train to become, you know. Mm-hmm. But again, it's so difficult to, to say who the star of tomorrow is because, as I said before, there's just so much that goes into it apart from mm-hmm. the music. It's the dedication, it's the, the discipline, it is the striving every day to make yourself better than you were yesterday. What opportunities am I What You know, there's just mm-hmm. so much to it and being prepared for disappointment. Also, years back in 2009, the BOV Joseph Kalea Choir was set up. And on several occasions, you have coached the choir, um, which has grown and grown over the years. And as far as I can understand, it's grown to count over 200 children participants. How on earth do you manage to control, to listen to it, to them individually? And then to coordinate them and to create harmony between them. I mean, how do you tackle a mass- massive task like this while protecting your own voice ultimately? Because you need to you need to take care of yourself as well. Yes, it's uh, the there's a Kalea BOV choir is is quite a special thing. We only meet in summer leading up to Joseph's summer concerts, so that's the only mm-hmm. time that comes together. Um, and yes, it is a big undertaking. Um, but again, they I, I like with working with children very much. I mean, I find them sometimes much easier to work with than adults <laughs> because they are so quick and very responsive. And, you know, if you treat them in a mature way, they respond to you and they, and, and they want to do what you're asking them to do, not because you're making them, but because they feel that, you are trusting them. And, and the Joseph Palea concert obviously is a, a huge event. They have, you know, really big, important singers coming over. It's Bocelli's come. And this year we had Domingo. And, you know, so it's a responsibility for them to be singing on this concert. And it's something that, you know, you have to make them understand. Um, yes, we've had 250 kids. We've also had 500 kids one year, which was absolutely crazy because that 500 came <laughs> oh my goodness me that came that came about because that year um the pope was visiting and the courier had called us because they knew we had a big children's choir and they said we'd like to fill saint george's piazza with children singing for the pope let's knock the pope's socks off <laughs> exactly so yeah we said well we have 250 and they said no not that's not enough we need to double it so I thought that this doubling was just for <laughs> the Pope's visit. <laughs> and after it went really well, so I would basically do from six to seven, I would see 250 children. And from seven to eight, I'd see the other 250. Um, 
And then it went so well that the organizers just said, oh, let's keep it for the summer concert. And I madly said, okay, yes. <laughs> but that was a one-off. We've gone back to 250 now, um, <laughs> which seems like a piece of cake after that. <laughs> <laughs> but Gillian, what about you? What does the future hold for you? Do you have any exciting projects in the pipeline? Yes, I've got um, a few. I'm looking at recording another CD. And um, this is a CD of music, which is, um, again, very special to me. And I'm, I'm, it was meant to happen pre-COVID. Obviously, then things got put on hold. So I'm looking now to um, starting off the process again um, next year. Um, festivals coming up, um, singing in an early music festival in Naples in the new year. Um, so, yes, working with the kids again, working musical education. And that's for me, I mean, again, performing is a big part of what I do. But I also believe in trying to leave the situation better than how you found it. So mm-hmm. I really, really believe in musical education and working with younger singers and working to make the environment that they work in better. So it's, it's I think it's important that you are a performer, but it's important then that you pass on what you've learned to the next generation. And that's how it keeps evolving and getting better, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that's really commendable. So Gillian, a last question and I'll let you go. Can somebody who is completely tone deaf learn to sing? I mean, at least to the extent that she can participate in a choir without destroying its sound completely. And I'm, of course, I'm asking for a friend here. <laughs> well. Um, <laughs> it de- it depends how you can train the voice. You can train your ear, and first you'd need to take some sessions on maybe some musical training, so you can test, you know, test your ear and start training your ear to respond to certain sounds. I have had in choirs before singers who are maybe not as pitch perfect as other singers, and you can train the voice to join an ensemble and you know create a sound that even if is not as good as the others it can be molded so yes positive a very positive one so I'll be sure to tell my friend she's actually probably listening in as we speak <laughs> very good tell her to join the Silesians choir <laughs> <laughs> Gillian thank you so much for sharing your life with us sharing your art and your enthusiasm is just so infective it's just so wonderful to see a performer who actually really totally enjoys and totally lives her art and transmits this enjoyment to our audiences thank you so much thank you Francesca it was a pleasure Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are pictures and links to all we've discussed on the Fondazione Patrimonio Malti website under the podcast section. That's www.patrimonio.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on your podcast player as this will help others find it faster. And please do remember to tell a friend about it. Until next episode, goodbye.